This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean DeBias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. I'd like to welcome Ronald Paul to the Reboot Chronicles. He is an investment strategist, podcaster, author, and co-founder of Exponential Age Asset Management, Scientific Magic Studios, and Real Vision, where he's also the CEO. So we're going to talk about that today. Well, it's good to see you. Great to see you. there in your barber chair. Those of you who can't uh, see it online, he's got a nice, uh, nice backdrop, unlike my, my green screen, which usually puts up cool logos and stuff. I don't know where to start with you. You know, we're both in a lot of Web3 businesses. You're obviously more into crypto than than I am, or maybe anyone I know, for gosh sakes. But uh, maybe let's start with the real vision. I've always, since you started it, always liked the concept of the democratization of financial information. And I think you called it the Netflix or HBO of finance, which to me probably resonates better with the millennials and XYZs than any other tagline. So uh, I'm sure that's not on your, your logo, but... Yeah, it's in the way I I've, I almost view it as, hey, it's like financing insights for the rest of us. Um, but I'm sure you have a lot of boomers, too. So I'd love to get into all of that and, you know, how we think financial information, you know, whether it's the three networks or or the financial channels, you know, a lot of entertainment going on there. Right. And you're uh, so you're, you've kind of taken a stance against that. But you guys actually are entertaining because you're you're heavy video. So you're you're really um so yeah, just love to hear about that, and then maybe we'll dig in a little bit on uh, baby boomers and other audiences. Yeah, let me give a bit of background about Real Vision. It's it's really my background and why we got there and what we're doing, and it's actually the same story as the crypto stories that are all tied yep. together. So I was at the epicenter of the world's financial sy- system. I was sitting. I ran the hedge fund sales business at Goldman Sachs in Europe in equities and equity derivatives. I had privilege to all of the information with the most powerful firms in the world, which were the hedge funds who kind of ran the world at the time. Um, And I then left to join a giant hedge fund, the largest hedge fund firm in Europe, to start a global macro hedge fund. Global macro is when you invest in all assets from equities to bonds to commodities to currencies to anything you want. So that's my remit. I look at the big picture world and see what's playing out and try and place bets accordingly. Um, I then decided to opt out of the rat race and I moved to the Mediterranean coast of Spain, where I started writing macroeconomic research and investment strategy, which I still write 19 years later called Global Macro Investor. That's read by the world's biggest family offices, 
corporations, sovereign wealth funds, hedge funds. I was in Europe from 2005, um, and I forecast the financial crisis, and then the European sovereign and banking crisis in 2012. And it was quite shocking to me because I knew what was going on. In fact, I'd made money from it. But friends of mine and friends of friends didn't. And they would come up to me saying, why didn't we know? I mean, I tried to warn so many people that I knew what was happening, yet people lost their life savings in the Spanish banking system. Friends of mine who were property developers went bust. Yeah, Spain was, Spain um, was hit hard too. Yeah, it was really hard for everybody. And... When people came up to me and said, why didn't we know? It just set bad, sit, it sat badly with me. And I thought, you know, I need to do something about this. So we started thinking about video. I started thinking about, you know, do I start a new newsletter to reach an audience? How do I tell people? But we coalesced on an idea around the co-founders who were all in Spain at the time as well about the idea of video. Netflix had just, had just launched uh, YouTube was just starting to get going. And we thought, well, this is probably the answer. And everyone said, we're crazy. We should have short form content that should be free because that's the only model that works. And we said, it, sorry, it's too important. It's people's finances. It should be long form and it should be subscription based. Mm -hmm. That was the bet we took. And what we did was interview the world's most famous hedge fund managers, analysts and strategists and had an hour of their time. The most amazing brains in the world and we gave that access to everybody. Nobody had had that before. It didn't exist before Real Vision. No, it was all it was all sound bites. It was all sound bites. So suddenly people <laughs> it, it is still. But so we changed the whole model of democratizing access to information. Then we added research tools and live events right. and all sorts of other stuff into that equation. And that then created a community of people because the kind of people who come to Real Vision are of all demographics, of all age groups, but they all come as the learning tribe. They're people who are curious about the financial world and how it might affect them. So we've kind of leaned into that community and we've created a large community that spills out across Twitter, across YouTube, across podcasts, across videos, across written research, and all of that. Part of that has also been a Web3 journey as well. We were the first people really to take cryptocurrency seriously and we started our first ever video featured bitcoin and it's been a core part of our philosophy has been educating people about this new parallel financial system that was being built so we've taken people on that journey too and have been one of the leading players in the understanding for millions of people what this means for them and how it can change events so that those are basically what we've been up can to I, can i drill down on one of those you and i have talked about how um Young people are they they watch CNBC, Fox Business, a bunch of others, depending on what country they're in. Um, but they are essentially still trying to play the the baby boomer game, as we discussed. And the whole, you know, income, real estate, S and P. You're basically saying, hey, uh, that's you know, that's no way. If you know, if you're in your twenties, that's not the way to plan your future. That that is out of gas. What what? Um, yeah, the advantage set for baby boomers is they came of 30 years old, roughly, yep. in the 70s. And what they got was real estate at very low valuations versus um, income. They had equities by 1980, equities at a P of seven. I mean, they got given a gift set. 
And they've ridden it all the way. Now, they've taken a lot of leverage as well because their wages in real terms actually didn't go up as much as they'd hoped. So they took on a ton of leverage, but captured the gains. Their kids are the millennials. They're now the same age as their parents were. And the equity market's trading in a multiple of three times what they got. The real estate market is so expensive that these kids can never afford to own real estate. And so... And interest rates are low. That their parents had interest rates at eighteen percent when they started saving. Yeah, even higher. Yeah. Crazy, so what they've mortgage. got is a much lower probability of building the American dream. Well, so I know some a friend of mine's dad um, bought Coca Cola when she was very young, and he still has it. He's made a fortune on one stock. <laughs> what I see now, Gen X, Y, Z, millennials, like the patience level, the in and outness, the microtransaction, the I don't see a long, a long game hold mentality, either for cash flow reasons or just mentality. Well, is that is that a bad assumption? Yes, yes and no. Yes, it's a bad assumption because they're massive four hundred one k passive investors. Uh, so they buy index yeah. funds, which is one of the things that screws up market valuations. All this, yeah, stuff. we're in this matchy matchy thing where you know the companies are matching. It. Yeah, good point. And then. They know that they need to take extra risk because 6% a year or 8% a year is just not going to cut it right. because it's never going to buy them a house. So then on the other side is their immense risk takers, the YOLO mentality. And so they will take risks that baby boomers think are ridiculous, but they kind of are forced to take the risk because how else are they ever going to catch up? So it's a risk-seeking culture um, which has driven entrepreneurship Startups, retail trading, cryptocurrency investments, all of these things are all coming out of this. And I don't think that's a bad thing. They've got lessons to learn. Everyone's got to learn when you invest, how to lose money, what's right, what's wrong. But the buy and hold mentality of something that compounds at 8% a year is just not going to get them to where they need to get to. Right. Not now. Do you view the, uh, you know, I, I call it the roaring 20s sometimes probably stole it from someone else but do, do you view the 20s as the best time ever or not talking about today's news but just uh, you know hey everyone we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners we'll be right back another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So, okay, this is complicated. Yep. Yes and no. Um, no, because we have the ongoing de debasement of the currency system by the central banks. Right. So that means our purchasing power of our income keeps going down versus the price of assets. But if you can buy assets, you'll probably do very well in this environment. But also, I'm a big believer in what I call the exponential age. And the exponential age is this nexus of all of these technologies all hitting adopt network adoption models at the same time. Right. That's cryptocurrency, AI, robotics, longevity sciences, biotech, um, Internet of Things, 
self-driving car, you know, all of these things, EV, green energy, um, all of these things are all hitting at the same time. Mankind has never gone through anything like yeah. this. This is the fastest pace of change. Perfect storm or maybe imperfect. Yeah. And you can either shake your fist at the sky and say, stop changing, or you can embrace it. And to me, this is a renaissance. This is a, the roaring 20s is, is going to be fundamentally a shift than what we knew in the last 50 years. Yep. So I'd love to jump into Web3 and AI, but I got to, before we get off of financial services, I got to just, um, I'm not sure. I've got a lot of Bitcoin friends, a lot of crypto people that fell for the hype are still out there. It's like one of your taglines was, uh, you know, no agenda, no editorial bias, but you know, you guys pushed a lot of crypto um, and then it kind of burst. And, you know, as you're headed into 24, looking at different things, how do you, you know, are, are people still bullish on crypto? Um, and uh, maybe maybe the maybe a better question is, you know, you've got like uh, Balaji, you know, the ex CTO of uh, Coinbase, saying, "Hey, you know, Bitcoin's going to be at a million. I think you're saying it's going to be at fifty grand, you know, fifty k soon. I think it was close to that at one point." Um, so yeah, most people when they say crypto now, they kind of like cringe, and I always say, "Well, there's Bitcoin and, and Ethereum." So how do you kind of walk people through it now when they're looking at the future? Okay. To understand this, I've been involved in this market since 2013 when I first saw yeah. Bitcoin. I wrote the first ever macroeconomic strategy paper and valuation for Bitcoin. Um, I've, so I've been all over this space. And the one thing when I wrote that first article is you need a 10-year time horizon. Everything else is done. And if you are worried about these cycles, you are trading it wrong. You're, being, you're trading and not investing in the adoption of a right. network. Right. So... How does crypto work? Crypto is driven by two things. It's really simple. Network adoption, which is Metcalfe's law. So that's the number of active users plus basically the number of connections or applications for those users. That is what drives the long-term trend. The log trend of Bitcoin over time is the best performing asset of all recorded history, and it remains so in every single up business cycle. There is no asset that's ever performed as well. But it is cyclical, driven by the, by the money supply and the liquidity side. And the emotions. And that's what brings it down 70 or 80%. So everyone goes, what? It comes down 70 80%. You've got to remember that if I look at, I'm just looking at the Bitcoin chart now, the low in 2015 was $200. Right. Then it went all the way up to $20,000. And then it corrected down to $2,800. All the lows are massively higher, and the highs are massively higher. Yep. Yep. So if you just step back and say, oh, I bought crypto and it fell, hold it. Your time horizon cannot be three years. Your time horizon needs to be long enough for the network adoption model to work. And the best way of doing that is just using a log chart and looking at it within that, and it's a very smooth uptrend. Right. Um, and then what you do is you learn to use the the down cycle, the liquidity cycle, to add to your investment over time, much like you would have done with Amazon, or you would have done with Google, or you would have done with Microsoft. They're very similar models. Don't forget Amazon back in 2001, too, fell 96%. Oh, I have articles um, from Barron's that said they're going to be out of business soon. The, the, I'm just about to speak at the... Um 
one of the largest retail conferences in the world. So what's my message to the, all the biggest brands in the world and the biggest retailers about, let's just say, Bitcoin? You know, they've added all these different currencies. There's a lot of wallets being announced at the show. And, you know, what, what do the big boys do in terms of accepting it, embracing it, ignoring it, which many of them are doing? I don't think Bitcoin will be a payment system except using the lightning layer for moving dollars around. So it's fine for that. It's fine if you're PayPal and you're in the monetary system because you give people a different product to right. use. But nobody wants to be the Bitcoin pizza guy <laughs> and buy you know, a couple of books on Amazon for Bitcoin and then realize because the Bitcoin goes up too much over it's time. Too volatile. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too volatile to do that yep. with. So I know it's, it seems fancy. There is a Bitcoin and ETH economy and you can get a share of that economy and that economy can do very well. So, you know, we take payments in ETH or Bitcoin or whatever at Real Vision. That's fine. Some people want to do that because they've accumulated a lot of capital in, in those particular assets. But generally speaking, it's a bit of a red herring, I think, yep. for that. Ethereum itself is becoming the payment system of the internet. It's very interesting because it is a base currency of which we quote things like NFTs right. in ETH itself. I've, I've never seen that in my yeah. life. Yeah, surprising. But uh, it was yeah. a trick question. That's pretty much what's in my slide. So thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you validated it. But no, seriously, you know, um, I love this company you guys started, uh, pretty heavy hitter, Science Magic Studios. Uh, you and I are both involved in Web3 companies. What um, What's going on there? So my thesis, my big thesis on crypto is I've started two companies. One is exponentialized asset management. That's for investors to invest in digital asset hedge funds and other vehicles to get exposure to the space. So the financialization of the crypto markets, whether it's family offices, high net worth investors, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, all of that. Sound Magic Studios was the other side of that equation, which is I look at a lot of Web3 and it's being built from the grounds up and they're all experiments. Some will fail, some will work. Great. But when I look at what Web3 does, it enables a bunch of really, really big intangibles on a balance sheet, culture, brand, community, to become tangibles via tokenization. So I always use the example of Disney. Disney probably has the largest culturally cultural brand on earth now. You know, it might have been Coca-Cola in the 60s, but it's not now. It's Disney. What is Disney's brand, community, and culture worth? Trillion dollars? Two trillion dollars? It's worth a lot more than the company yeah. is. Now, it's not realizable, but when you tokenize it, it creates that. Science Magic Studios' mission is to tokenize culture, these large cultural communities. Music, right? Music's one of the biggest cultural phenomena of our... Of, of human activity, sports, gigantic, fashion, gigantic, and then on top of that, entertainment, whether it's film franchises, book, um, TV, all of these things have cultural currency that can be tokenized. Right. So the idea of that, we built an amazing team uh, with some incredible advisors to go and talk the talk that needs to happen at boardrooms, not by a bunch of you know crypto heads with hoodies, but 
serious people to go in there and explain how we can unlock massive trapped value for these massive communities and drive forward this whole space. So their business model is toward the the global 1,000 companies and what they should do and and how they should partner up. As long as they've got cultural relevancy. Yeah, of course. So if you don't have it, you don't have... Yeah, yeah, you you can't tokenize. But But if you do, and we've seen this, the fashion companies coming out of you know LVMH, they've all started experimenting with this. Um, we can see it um, happening in the music industry. Beauty industry too, fashion and beauty. Yep. Yep, it's all there. So these things are, these, this is going to be very big. And even through this, what we call crypto winter, the brands are still interested in this because they're thinking, okay, what this allows me to do, um, in addition to turning it to a tangible on the balance sheet, it allows me to have customer loyalty in a way that the alignment of incentives makes it a very powerful network effect because your customers, by owning digital assets from your ecosystem, will appreciate in time or they can accumulate more of them by being good community members right. are now passionate behind your brands, much like kids trade Nike sneakers. So they're thinking, okay, this is going to make people more loyal and we'll have a direct relationship with our community or buyers by doing this, and therefore we can collapse the costs of using middlemen like Google and Facebook, et cetera, at the middle too. So yeah. it's very powerful. So you probably read some of my articles and listened to this podcast. So Web3, there's an oligopoly that does not want Web3 to come into existence, unless they can control it and own it. So you mentioned a couple of them. We won't go through the top 10 list, but we all know who they are. We still call them big tech. Big tech. And 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 to their credit, and I, I grew up in this, running Silicon Valley, you know, media companies and internet companies and games companies, and they paid for it too. They invested trillions. So they rightly do deserve some ad revenue right now, but they're also very much against the concept of Web3, the democratization of e-commerce. Just take that one. So how do you see that playing out? Because the big brands, they're addicted on big media, they're addicted on big tech because it is the advertising that, you know, the old 50%, we just don't know what's, you know, where it's hitting, still happening out there. So is this a, uh, so, this a long transition? I spent a lot of time. <laughs> hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I've spent a lot of time speaking to these guys. I've done a yeah. Google Talks to the, all of the Google team and spoke to everybody from LinkedIn to Amazon to Google to Meta to everybody. Yeah. They all get it. And there's a great crowd of people in those companies who are really smart, who are pushing for change. But many of the senior leadership also agrees. But they've got the problem of how to disrupt your business model <laughs> Without crashing it's the plane. quarterly earnings golf, yes. And but they do get it, yeah. and I think they will transition. 
Now, Meta have just taken a step back. But, again, I know the people there. They're good people. The fight is not over. No, but they... It's just taking time because Meta's under revenue pressure, like everybody is right yeah, now. Yeah, they went whole hog expense on Metaverse when it was too way too early. I mean, I was... I was yeah. like you, you know, been running these companies since the '90s. We built some of the first 3D virtual worlds back in the '90s. They have the same amount of simultaneous users right now. So, yeah, a little early, but um, change the company name around. It was a bit bold. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's not to make fun of them. It's just do there are you know opposing forces. So companies, anyway, back to the big brands, big retailers, big guns, even the financial institutions are trying to figure it out, and they're doing a lot of testing and they're paying consultants a lot of money to figure out everything from metaverse to Web three to crypto and um yeah i was just curious, what's so what is your business model that you know at the um at, at science, at science magic, magic studios yeah. um that is a um we are very selective on who we will work yeah. with because it needs to be these big cultural communities and then we have some of the best people in the world to help strategize it and then help to build it. We have an enormous network of people, whether it's deep technologists, whether it's product people, everything, to then implement it. All right. um, and then we then take a stake in the in the we you know we get rewarded for a stake in the digital asset ecosystem that's been built. So we're incentivized for that to be successful, as opposed to taking a fee. We want to drive this space forward, so it has to be successful for us. Yeah, to I love that. To be like you're heavy into, hey, you've got to have cultural asset, and we'll double down, and, and you can pay us in tokens because that's how much we believe in what the hell we're building for you in the first place or helping you build or address you. Right? No, it's a good model. I, uh, I uh, probably know too many Fortune 500s that need it because they're, they're kind of in the hangover phase. So they kind of like took some guidance from people we won't mention, you know, some of the big tech ones, and it's the same old ad model. It's not... It's not what we're trying to build here. It's the future. Um, no, and they will. They will. They are receptive. Yeah, but it takes time. Yeah. It takes time, and you need to. As I said, a lot of the people who've tried to talk to these people don't know how to talk at board level. But it, it's going to end up being a board level decision. Whether it's the chief marketing officer, you know, it's certainly the C suite, and you need to go in with the right people and the right conversations and speak the language that will unlock. The yeses within the organization. Yeah, you're doing some of my talk. One of my slides says, "Should you hire a chief metaverse officer?" This is a year ago when they all the hype. My answer was no. By the way, what's your chief digital officer and CMO doing in the first place? Right. Anyway, we won't poke fun at the big guys so much anymore. But um, so I've been uh, in and around the AI business, artificial intelligence, as we used to call it in the old days, um, for I don't gosh, probably a decade and a half now. But really, like the last ten years, it's been. A lot of lab work, a lot of things going on. And there's companies, you know, like Review or I'm Chairman and others that were using AI for specific vertical applications, whether it's health, beauty, wellness, financial, whatever. Um, so right now, you know, you've probably been to cocktail parties where, you know, the moms are talking about AI because it's been glorified. Or maybe we're just moving on to the next shiny object. So half of my friends say it's the next bubble, which I disagree with. And the other half of my friends are more in the camp of this is going to change the world if we do it right. But all I tell them is, there's a question in here somewhere, is the what you're seeing is the capability at a categorical level. What the, Where the rubber meets the road is going to be in vertical applications and what you can actually do with it, how you curate you know, and, and create the next generation of company and, and wealth, quite frankly. But what's your favorite industry to talk about in terms of what I, you know, AI is going to impact? If you 
you know, had one example. Look, AI is going to impact every single industry that's based around knowledge. I, I cannot stress what a nuclear bomb this <laughs> is for both productivity, deflationary forces, and the knowledge-based econ- economy. It's going to create huge losers, like the shutting down of coal mines, car plants, and steel mills did. There's going to be a lot of people who laid off in this cycle that will never get a job again. Yeah, there's two schools that have thought about that, like displacing knowledge workers. There's a whole slew of people like, no, it'll never replace the front-end coder. I'm like, really? Have you heard of low-code, no-code? We're getting a little geeky here. I'm sorry. but No, but I mean, mean, you look at what's going on. 42% of all code in GitHub now is AI-generated. So that's only going to go exponential and accelerate. So... We've got an issue now that in the vertical level, AI, as you know, was better than humans at single tasks. But now it's becoming more generalized. So it's becoming better at humans at all tasks. So lovely story last night. I was uh, having uh, dinner with a friend of mine who's a radiologist, and he's actually the chairman of a hospital here in the Cayman Islands. And he had taken a new MRI for cardiology kind of new state of the art. He's like trying to figure out this machine, figure out how to use diagnostics, what he's doing and had a particular problem with a patient. So he's like, you know, I spent four hours yesterday trying to figure this out. You know, it's a whole new skill set for me. And I said, kind of how much is per dollar is your hour? He's like, I don't know, th- we, we worked out maybe it's $300 an hour. So he's like, he spent 1200 bucks on researching how to just give one outcome for one patient. I said, have you tried chat gpt4 of which it came out in what 30 seconds the whole thing and it's like oh my god this is more information than i have learned than i know or i could even find right and that was a fraction if i price it out it probably costs about one cent versus his twelve hundred dollars i mean that is the level of deflationary so what we're doing here is humans have imagination and humans put it into action, whether it's businesses, art, anything. And in the middle of that is lawyers, accountants, and knowledge workers. We collapse that all down. So your imagination can be a text prompt or soon to be a voice prompt, and it will create video, audio, code, anything for anybody. So it's impossible to overstate the importance of AI. It is possible to overstate where we are in the cycle. We've just gone through this ridiculous acceleration phase, and we will probably end up with a bubble, which will probably unwind. But still, like crypto, the adoption of this thing is absolute and total, and it drives what we talked about before, the roaring 20s and a renaissance, because it's going to unlock enormous amounts of power from people, businesses, and who knows exactly. what Exactly. Well said. Yeah, most people misunderstand bubbles. It's usually just the spark, the igniter that starts the next wave. Of course, there's too many companies that get into it. That's that's called the entrepreneurial movement. That's what we need. But uh, yeah, I'm more in the camp of what it can create. It can create companies and industries that we've never thought of. It's not just getting rid of accountants and lawyers, though that's always good cocktail party talk. Just a little tip. So just to take us out, uh, yeah, just give us some, uh, what should some of the big brands out there and startups be looking at in terms of, uh, you know, the next, uh, as we head to the 2030s here in the next five or six years? 
Look, it's actually difficult to call. Yeah, that's why I asked. That's because why I asked you. a lot of what is, <laughs> yeah, because a lot of what is going to come, it's not been built yet, or if it is, we don't know about right. it. Now, what is clear is Microsoft, Google, and others will capture a lot of this wave. I mean, the stuff that is hidden in Google X is enormous, from robotics to biosciences to AI. Yep. So Microsoft have become ultra-aggressive. For a non-aggressive company, they've become probably the most aggressive corporate on Finally. earth. So that, yeah, and so there's a lot of value that they will unlock. The other thing is pretty obvious. If you're an investor, the one thing you need for all of this, every single part of the exponential age, is a silicon chip. So the semiconductor companies will do very well because they become the gatekeepers to computational power, which is needed. Um, but in companies themselves, I just choose broad baskets of this stuff because we don't know. And so much of this is still early. You know, we don't even know in the biotech space what's going to have the breakthroughs. But we know when you add AI to the hu human genome, we will solve cancer and all of these things very quickly. When does that come? I don't know. But is that going to be a Cambria moment, just like we've seen with chat GPT? Probably. Yes. It's going to literally change the world. Yep. Well said. All right, we want to thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to Ralph Paul, who is the CEO of Real Vision, among other things. This is Dean Tobias with the Reboot Chronicles. I want to thank you for joining us today, and we will see you soon. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.